Picture this. Rows of colorful houses, standing tall, standing proudly together. An open-door policy among neighbors. So any child coming home from school knows he only has to put into one house, not even his own, to ask for a snack. Children and teenagers running from their front doors into the comforting, if cold, waters of Bedford Basin. Weekly services at the United Church down the road, the center of the community. An idyllic childhood, a place to raise a family and to be proud of owning a home. That is, until the city government decides to tear it all down. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters. First of all, I want to apologize to my listeners for only having one episode come out this month. Due to a combination of illness and just general life busyness, I found it hard to actually take the time to record but also put the research and care into this disaster that I wanted to. We are, as the tail end of February 2024, Black History Month here in Canada and America. And this particular month has been designated as Black Excellence Month. And to me, even though we are talking about a disaster in Canadian history, I am in awe of the fortitude and determination of the people who once lived in this community to really highlight and show the world what a special place it truly was. So, this February 2024 episode is all about Africville. Many Canadians would be surprised to know that slavery was in fact a thing here in Canada. We take our place as the terminus for many branches of the Underground Railroad seriously. We take pride in our freedom and having been a haven for those seeking refuge. But we did have slaves, and Nova Scotia was part of that as well. Back when Nova Scotia was being explored and colonized by both Portuguese and French settlers, they did enslave people, mostly indigenous. It wasn't until England comes over and takes what was then known as Acadie away from French settlers and claims it for the British crown, thus creating Nova Scotia, that African Americans begin to be enslaved. The biggest influx of black settlers into Nova Scotia happens during the Revolutionary War. 3,500 black migrants made their way to Nova Scotian shores. Many settled in an area close to Shelburne, known as Birchtown, built by loyalists. Others went to find work wherever they could, and often for very little money. Their willingness to do any job, even for below market value, made them targets for many white people also seeking employment. The African Americans who made it to Nova Scotia were always given the worst land, mostly infertile land, thus unable to farm for themselves. The first race riot in Nova Scotia occurs in 1784 in Shelburne County, where mostly white men 
attacked black men for stealing their jobs. The War of 1812 saw another influx of black migrants from America, and in this time, they started to help to build the city of Halifax, including many of the original buildings. This determination to have the blacks occupy the worst lands continued in Halifax, and by 1840, a group of black families decided that they would seek out some territory of their own. They settled on a small plot of land close to the Bedford Basin. The land had been deemed infertile. The African Americans took it over, and in the 1840s, they named it Africville. Since the land was infertile, and since the blacks that founded it were the only ones that wanted it, they assumed that it would be pretty smooth sailing to begin their community. This was not to be. In 1853, the first Africville houses are demolished. Why? To make way for the Nova Scotia Railway Company. None of the people who actually occupied the houses that the Nova Scotia Railway Company demolished were actually asked if it was okay to demolish their houses, nor compensated for them. Our very first land rights arguments in a court of law come from this. But stay Africville did, and more houses began to be built. The city of Halifax began to encroach on their territory little by little. First, a prison was built overlooking Africville, housing criminals from all over the greater Halifax area. The next was a sewage plant. That's right, the sewage of Halifax began to be deposited right on the border of Africville. Oh, but wait, there's more. You see, in the 1870s, an infectious disease hospital that deposited its waste was built. And all of that went right into Africville soil and air. And marking our second time in two episodes that we're going to talk about the Halifax explosion, it too affected Africville. Of course, it's on the Bedford Basin, exactly where the explosion hit. But unlike all of the other communities within Halifax, Africville received no federal money for the devastation that it had incurred. Now, having said all of this, the citizens of Africville managed to do many wonderful things in spite of all of this. They opened their own school in 1883, having asked the city of Halifax and received a teacher to teach their children. And that school would continue until 1953. They opened their own united church, called the Seaview African United Church, which became a pillar of the community, a place where everyone would go to gather every Sunday. The people of Africville were so proud of their houses, of having the ability to have their own property at a time when very few black people were able to. Most of the time what would happen is if one of the original families still had some land, they would parcel part of it out to their children. Their children would then take the time to build their own house, usually over the period of a couple of years. And in this case, one of the faults of the city of Halifax 
turned into a bonus for the citizens of Africville. You see, the city dump was placed right on the limits of Africville. But this helped people wanting to build their houses to go searching for window frames, wood, doors, doorknobs, and various items that they could use to build their own home. And things coming from the garbage notwithstanding, we need only look at a picture of the rainbow-hued, colorful houses to see the pride that was in it. Africville had its own post office, its own store, and it was relatively able to be self-sufficient. I say relatively able because despite the fact that no one in Africville had any running water and that electricity was hard to come by, the citizens still paid taxes to the city of Halifax. So to understand the injustice of paying taxes, I want to read you a passage from Raising Africville. Throughout Africville's existence, the city government frequently denied building permits to residents wishing to improve their homes. They also refused requests for water and sewage lines, garbage collection, police services, and fire protection. Newspapers at this time reported dangerous conditions in Africville. Given the proximity of the dump and also deprived of proper heating, some residents burned discarded batteries for warmth, resulting in several cases of lead poisoning. Fires were frequent, resulting in injuries and deaths, as they could not be extinguished in an area with no water lines. The only action taken by the city against contamination in the water supply was to post a sign warning residents to boil the water before drinking and cooking with it. Some reports speculated that residents may have developed immunity to the copious bacteria in their wells. End quote. In a further story, because ambulances could not come to Africville, one resident had to deliver one of her own children by herself at home. She cut the baby's umbilical cord, carried the newborn child out of her house on Forrester Street, and flagged down a police car that was patrolling the city dump. From there, the police gave her a lift to the hospital, just for her to deliver the placenta. Those who didn't live in Africville had their own opinions about it. That city dump we just mentioned, where people would collect items to help build their homes, but get batteries and such. None of the people in Africville were actually consulted before the city dump was put in. In fact, the city of Halifax decided on that specific location because they knew there would be pushback from any other community had they put the city dump next to them. And... As the city dump became known as a place for scavengers to come and hunt for items, thus began the rumor that Africville was only a community of scavengers, despite this not being the case. As a matter of fact, there were more white people in Halifax on welfare than there ever was in Africville's history. Due to the lack of running water and electricity, and frankly most basic needs, People began to understand Africville as a slum. 
And in the 1950s and 60s, urban renewal projects became huge things for many cities across North America. The idea of removing the last of the slums. Also important in 1960 was the idea of ending segregation. And because Africville was a black community, some saw it as a still further symbol of segregation. Never mind that the community was self-sufficient. I'd like to read a Globe and Mail report from 1967 that gives you an idea of what the rest of Canada was thinking about Africville at the time. This was written by Eric Christensen, and he had photos that accompanied this report. My fellow Canadians, it is strange to bump along the waterfront over tracks and through potholes until, near the city dump, you come on to a place of shacks on a hillside where the children run for shelter when they even see a car slow down. We got lots of pictures of them fleeing from us, pushing old bicycles and ruined baby carriages used as playthings, scuttling like scared squirrels while their mothers rapped on windows and urged them to run faster. Lots of those pictures, but only one of children stock still, a second before they broke and ran. But Halifax is trying. Many people of Africville have been induced to move to bright public housing. The old ones generally refuse. All that can be done is to wait until they die off. Does that sound like a positive reading to you? I want to touch on the point that Christensen makes about the children running. We actually have evidence from those children growing up in Africville about how idyllic their childhoods were. What changed were teenagers from Halifax deciding to spend their Friday and Saturday nights joyriding down onto the unpaved streets of Africville and attempting to throw stones, rocks, whatever they could find at the children who happened to be on the streets. It's no wonder, then, that a strange man with a camera might not have seemed like the safest thing for those children to witness. Back in the 1960s, the mayor of Halifax was a man named J.E. Lloyd, and his quote when he decided that it would be a good idea to get rid of the community of Africville goes as follows, quote, Sometimes certain people need to be shown that things are not in their best interests and their children's. End quote. Now, part of the problem with the city of Halifax deciding that they were, in fact, to get rid of Africville is that many of the people in Africville actually weren't spoken to. By 1963, the city of Halifax knew that they wanted to get rid of Africville. Rather than calling a series of meetings to talk to the citizens of Africville, or God forbid, just give them the things that the citizens of Africville, as taxpaying citizens of Halifax, actually wanted, they decided that they needed to outsource this opinion. The Halifax Advisory Committee on Human Rights decided to do a search for a man or social worker who might be able to give them what they needed. They found that in Dr. Albert Rose, professor of social work at the University of Toronto. They invited Dr. Rose to visit Halifax and to show him the area. 
and see what he said. Dr. Rose eventually did come in November of 1963, where he met members of staff of the city of Halifax and Dalhousie University and community specialists. He did not meet any citizens from Africville. After his 48-hour visit, Albert Rose decided the following. Number one, that the residents of Africville seemed ready and in some cases eager, to negotiate settlements concerning the ultimate destruction of their community. He also went on to say that Africville and its relocation of the residents was a lot more than just a housing problem. It was a welfare problem, that they needed to be able to give the people whom they were taking out of their homes financial compensation, but also more than that, legal aid and the ability to still find community. He did say, literally, that there was quite no community in Canada or North America like Africville. And it is important to say he also has this, quote, The years of neglect of this community by the administration of the city of Halifax must be borne in mind by the negotiators. Didn't really seem to. Less than 40% of Africville citizens even were able to attend meetings about what was going to happen, let alone stop them from doing any of this. A. Allen Borovoy of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association had this to say a decade later when going back to talk about the destruction of Africville. People always say, why weren't the people consulted? There wasn't an organization. The question should be, where do we find the seed money to fund Indigenous organizations? to fight back. Africville didn't have an organization like this. There was no community-funded organization to help keep Africville running. And so, with that, the city continued on. Fewer than 20% of residents ever had any contact with the Halifax Human Rights Advisory Committee. The group charged with consulting the community, the same group who brought Albert Rose in to see what he had to say. The city also went to check the land rights in Africville, and by 1962, 13 of the 80 families that were living in Africville held titles to their land. The remainder were occupying houses under squatters' rights. Those 13 families who could show a deed to the land were offered a down payment in return for their houses being demolished. Those with squatters' rights were given $500. The city of Halifax promised to help the citizens of Africville. They would be relocated, many into public housing projects, provided with that legal aid, given financial assistance, and in general, promised to make their life much easier once Africville was gone. Suffice to say, given that this is Canadian disasters, not much of that actually happened. The center of the community, the Seaview African American United Church, which had been standing as a pillar of the community for decades, was actually torn down in the middle of the night. People went to sleep with the church outside of their window. They woke up to a pile of boards. 
It's also worth noting that that church was where the community meetings had been held in the first place. Many families were bullied into leaving their homes, oftentimes given only 24 hours' notice to grab their belongings and leave. In perhaps the worst case, an elderly woman was actually put on a garbage truck with all her belongings and ferreted out of Africville. Even the garbage truck drivers were horrified at the fact that they were sending this woman into Halifax, and she still didn't know where she was going to live. Another man, a Mr. Stewart, was actually in the hospital when his house was demolished in 1969. Nobody had thought to contact him. And so, when he was finally released a month later, he returned to Africville and the spot where his house once stood, to find, much like Seaview United, a pile of boards. Citizens of Africville who moved into Halifax were often put in public housing projects, or in some cases, places that had already been scheduled for demolition. It was not the tidy, rainbow-colored houses that they'd taken such great care in maintaining. And as I mentioned earlier, when Africville was in existence, there were more white people on welfare in Halifax than there were in Africville, by a significant margin. But after moving into Halifax proper, many of them had to go on welfare in order to pay for their housing. You see, even with squatters' rights, that was their home that they didn't need to continue to pay for. Another loss to the community was the fact that many of them were no longer on Bedford Basin. No longer could children run through the grass and go and collect shells and pretty rocks right on the beaches. There was no longer the ability to go and fish just offshore. In some cases, particularly the public housing works, there was no greenery at all. There was no center of a community, no place to go and visit neighbors. It only took a couple of years before Remember Africville became an institution in the summer, where the 80 families would head down to Bedford Basin with tents, campers, lots of food, and lots of laughter to reminisce about the place that they'd loved so much. Another injustice is the fact that though all of the houses in Africville were torn down, they weren't replaced by more housing to help those people. It was given over as industrial land. Industrial land that, to be honest, didn't really do much with where the community had been. Many former members of Africville remain convinced to this day that the elderly who had lived in Africville had their lives shortened by at least five years from having been forced from their homes. Some of them had lived there their entire lives and were now in small apartments trying to refigure their lives out. And though all of the welfare and legal aid and money had been promised for over three years, the programs ended after only two. Many citizens struggled living in projects. Those who found themselves in other neighborhoods were often harassed by their white neighbors who begged them to go and find somewhere else to live that they didn't want their community sullied by having black people in it. Some members of Africville decided that their time in Halifax was done and they moved far afield. 
some to Toronto and Montreal, others as far away as Winnipeg. Life continued on. Eventually, a park was built right at Bedford Basin, where babies and children used to be baptized at the Seaview United Church. In 1997, the area where Africville had once stood became a national historic site, one that tells the story of this community of people who made a beautiful life for themselves when everything seemed poised against them in Nova Scotia. People still come to this National Historic Site every summer to keep reminiscing, although now there are more generations who have not ever lived in Africville, but are still told of these beautiful stories and people. The church did end up being rebuilt, and it is now a museum dedicated to the legacy of Africville. There's also an Africville genealogical society where people can go and trace their ancestry back through to those first original families who moved to the area in the 1840s. Whether you think of what actually happened in Africville as a, well, hopefully misguided attempt by the city of Halifax to help black people, it's worth mentioning again the actual citizens of Africville really weren't asked what was best for them. In many cases, they were just bullied into giving up their houses. The last house stood until 1970. It took under two years for all of those 80 families to disappear from the area. Africville is a special community in terms of North American history. And it's a shame that the culture was lost so terribly. You need only go watch some of the documentaries or read some first-hand accounts to understand just how beautiful and special Africville was for its citizens. In all of my research, I've never come across a place that held so much beauty in the hearts of the people who lived there. It makes its destruction all the more painful to know that now we understand the importance of community in a way that we did not back in the 60s. We understand the importance of self-determination for people a lot more than we did in the 1960s. And hopefully the era of white politicians determining what is best for citizens for whom they have little regard is over as well. But the next time you are in Halifax, Nova Scotia, I encourage you to head to the north end of the city and take a look at this beautiful spot on the bay where so many people lived lives that they could be proud of. I'm Rachel Stewart, and this is Canadian Disasters, True North Strong and Destructive. Destructive.